Welcome to episode number 27 of the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host and guide into the lives of interesting people connected to Jackson Hole. My guest today is the guy who gets paid to put people to sleep, Dr. Mark Domsky, a local anesthesiologist, but also the author of an eye-popping book inspired during an anniversary trip with his wife to Bhutan. Mark will share with us what inspired him to write a book about the phallus, and we will talk a little bit about why the topic of the phallus is so taboo in our culture. Mark will also share with us what changed in his life to move him to become a super vegan. Yep, a super vegan. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Mark, thank you for joining me here at the Jackson Hole Connection today. Excited to get your perspective on writing Phallus through Bhutan and how you landed here in Jackson Hole and all the wonderful things that you do for our community. Thanks for having me, Stefan. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Well, let's start off with how you landed in Jackson Hole. But before we get into that real quick, I'm going to give people a little bit of clarification that your wife, Lisa, was on the show a few episodes earlier. So she gave a little bit of history. But now that you're the cause of moving to Jackson Hole, <laughs> let's hear your perspective. Because there's always a different perspective between husband and wife. That's true. <laughs> well, years ago, uh, we were training in Michigan, ultimately. We're both from Philadelphia area originally. And then we moved out to Michigan to train. And I don't know whether I really wanted to do that, but I had been going out with Lisa for a while at that point. And ultimately, if our relationship was going to continue, I was going to have to move out to Michigan uh, to train. Uh, so in my mind, that was a deciding factor and the checkbox went on her column. So if we were going to move, <laughs> if we were going to move again in the future, then, you know, it would be my turn to uh, make the decision. And we had been in Michigan and, and things were wonderful in Michigan, great career wise, great training wise, but it never felt like home. And our kids were getting to an age where if we didn't move, we weren't going to pull them out of you know, junior high school and middle school or high school and uh, move somewhere. So we started talking about it. And we'd been coming out west for years skiing. And I had a, you know, desire to come to Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, Lisa had a desire to go to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and the way I remember it in my mind was we went to a uh, anesthesia meeting one year in Florida and it was in October and we took the kids and it was so blistering hot when we were there they said there is no way we are moving to Florida ever that's what the kids <laughs> said and so I had a little support from them and ultimately uh, one night I was up uh, on call in the OB area of uh, the hospital I used to work at in Michigan and there's a site called Gasworks. 
and I was just doing a search to see if there's any jobs available in Wyoming and Florida and Colorado. I was still trying to be nice to my wife. <laughs> and a hit popped up on Jackson. So I thought I would call them up and I called and left a message and then kind of forgot about it. And then a few weeks later, our secretary uh, told me I had a call from Jackson. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a Jackson in Michigan of where I don't know anybody. And Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> there's a few. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I'm thinking, I don't know anybody in Jackson, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And then when she gave me the number, finally, or when I went around to get the number, it was 307. So I knew it was Jackson, Wyoming. Uh, or, or I knew it was Wyoming. And I uh, called up, and the anesthesiologist at the time, his name was Jeff Neri. He's out in Bend, Oregon now. Great guy. He was interested in knowing whether I could come out and moonlight a little bit. They had just hired someone that was going to be starting. And I was in a very big group. You could trade days and weeks and all kinds of deals. So I said, sure, I'll be glad to help you out. Uh, so I came out in the fall. Uh, it was a September, the first time that September. And I think when I had spoken to him, it was maybe uh, March or April. I came out in September to Moonlight and I'd never been here in September. Always had been here in February or March. And I was blown away about how incredible it was. And we've been here 16 years and, and they didn't have that uh, fall art festival back then. Mm -hmm. So there was no one around in the fall it's crickets yeah and it was it was blown away beautiful and i remember sitting at the base of snow king thinking geez i have to figure out how to get here <laughs> and then what happened is it was a great time uh this new person started with jeff and i guess it must have not worked out because after about five six months he called me up said the situation isn't working out. And I said, I'd be willing uh, to come out again and help him out. And I came out again. And that was probably in March of the following year, April. And had another great time. And he was talking about hiring me and uh, working a, a deal out. And I said, look, I have to pass this by my wife uh, before very wise. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly, because she's a urologist. Uh, and uh, came home, you know, was still very excited about the potential opportunity. Uh, but, you know, we talked about it a little more. And we were coming out in June. Uh, Lisa had sent me out. I think that was when I was uh, 40 or 41. Uh, we were coming out to go fly fishing and she came out then we met with Jeff you know had a whole conversation said we would think about it and ultimately uh, I came out one more time it was in a January and in the interim again he hired another person and that ultimately wasn't working out so he called me up on short notice I said I, it was for January I came out and Lisa I told her I said you know what why don't you come out with me? We always come out tail end of February, March. You know, it's always a little warmer. January is usually the coldest time of year. You come out with me. And then if you tell me no, I will drop it. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I think most of you know that there usually is, well, this year was a little unusual. There's usually that warm week in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but when we came out, that was that week. And it was like 30s. Okay. And I'm thinking, this isn't so bad. So in my mind, she felt the same way. Mm-hmm. But what she really tells me is no. She doesn't like the cold, even 32. She did it for me. <laughs> so we decided to come out. That's spectacular. Yeah. So you move here to take over the anesthesiology mm-hmm. practice. And Lisa comes and opens a practice for urology. Yep. And you bring your daughters. Bring our daughters. All right. So you're all in. All in. All in. And fast forward, how many years is it now that you and Lisa have settled roots here in Jackson? We've been here 16 years. Okay. It's kind of amazing. And you know what? I wake up every day and feel blessed. <laughs> it, it is a spectacular place to live. Right. And we are blessed to be able to live here. And so since then, during that time, you have helped this medical, the community, uh, the medical community grow and develop into what it is now, because for a while it was kind of rural practice medicine. And I would say with technology and where it is now, we're not so much rural. Right. It, it, I I will freely admit that it was a little bit of the wild west. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) A number of years ago, I I came from a large uh, academic center Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. one wonders uh, or, or one thinks that or hopes that the organization that I came from uh, was a well-oiled machine and that they practiced at the highest standard of care. Uh, and when you're in academia uh, and these large medical centers, that's not to say that everything is wonderful at large medical centers. There was a, a I, I felt as though you practice within uh, constraints, that you knew that things were supposed to be done a certain way. There were standards uh, that were maintained at all times by everybody. And just as you said, it, it takes a while for that to filter down to the rural community level. And... You know, it was a bit eye-opening when I first came out here. <laughs> that has dramatically changed uh, over the years, all for the better. Uh, when you would have a conversation and uh, with a physician, and a physician would say, well, this is how we do things here. And I would think to myself, really? <laughs> well, there's a whole world out there. <laughs> and, and things are done a little bit differently out in the rest of the world. So maybe we need to uh, bring some of those concepts here to offer you know, what would be considered the standard uh, of care. Well, I'm thankful that you challenged the status quo and this is how we do things here. But I think you could find that in any business and any culture throughout the world. It didn't have to just be a, a rural community to hear people say this is how we do things and over time places fail because of that and they fail horribly absolutely Um, to be willing to grow absolutely yeah you do have to be willing to grow and over time you and lisa have done quite a bit of traveling and several years ago you went to bhutan 
And from that travel, you are now not just a doctor, but you are an author of your own book, Phallus Through Bhutan, Journey of the Magic Thunderbolt. Thank you for bringing the book by. Um, I'm interested to sit down with my wife <laughs> and peruse this book. I think we'll have a great time of looking about looking at it. Tell us what inspired you to write this book. Well, it w we were coming upon our 25th wedding anniversary, and I was trying to think of something uh, interesting to do and a little different that incorporated both things that I enjoyed, such as uh, mountain towns, uh, as well as uh, things that my wife likes to do, which is uh, practice urology. <laughs> <laughs> and a friend of ours uh, was telling me about Bhutan, and I thought, wow, what a great place to take a urologist. <laughs> uh, because of the phallic artwork. However, I, you know, I couldn't even imagine the description, you know, when, when he was telling me about it. It was just kind of an off-the-cuff remark. Uh, so I thought, we'll go to Bhutan. And we did. The culture, uh, the Buddhist culture is obviously uh, very special. Uh, the country is very special and uh, very isolated. Uh, they didn't open their doors to uh, travel tourism until I think 1997. Really? Uh, it was very restricted. They are a constitutional monarchy uh, which is a uh, very uh, open uh, and free uh, political system. And it, it is just unspoiled there. Uh, some of the people we went with, we went with a group of people from Jackson, uh, had been to Nepal many, many years ago, and they felt as though it was what Nepal was like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Now, that may be because they basically have a built-in travel tariff <laughs> that you have to pay daily, uh, to go there, which, you know, on one hand, while uh, people may be offended by that, on the other hand, it is their country and, and they want to keep their country a certain way. Uh, so if it's uh, somewhat restrictive and it has allowed the country to look like and maintain uh, the beauty that it has, I say so be it. But what you're doing to land, I mean, it takes a couple days to get there, essentially. Uh, you can either go through uh, Bangkok or India or Thailand to get there. And you have to fly through the Himalayas to uh, land in Thimphu. And it, it, the plane makes some significant bank turns. And then you come into this open area, this valley, and you realize how special this place is. And, and just as an added uh, note, not that we stayed there, but there are more Amman resorts in Bhutan than any other country in the world. No kidding. And Bhutan is a very small country. So that would suggest how spectacular mm -hmm. the country is. You get off the plane and you realize it was a difficult journey. And the people are wearing their goes, which the men, it's their national outfit. And they have that Asian Mongol look to them. And... You walk off the airplane into the terminal and someone, Mark, how are you? <laughs> so, so many emotions are going and they are highly intelligent people, very educated. They, education is a significant 
part of their culture. And they speak not just perfect English, many of the Bhutanese, uh, but even understand our sl- you know understand the slang. Mm-hmm. So it's just you're, you you become disoriented because here are people that look totally different than you. You've been traveling for days, and there's huge mountains out there, and these people are speaking perfect English. And then you go into town and you start walking along the street, and you see these big phalluses <laughs> on the walls painted or uh, as uh, uh, talismans around their neck or sculptures. And you think, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) And people are just walking around like it's just another day. How is the phallus connected to their culture? There was a, uh, there was a Lama. His name was Drukpa Kunli and he came from Tibet. And I don't know whether he officially completed his training Uh, However, he became known as the divine madman. And what he would do uh, was slay the demons with his magic thunderbolt, as opposed to taking the serious tact of most lamas uh, to educate and indoctrinate people. He had more of a uh, wild and crazy side. I mean, when I see patients sometimes coming in for surgery now, and they're in their upper 80s or 90s. And some of these people look incredible. And they're incredibly healthy. And I usually say, what's your secret? I think it's usually one of two ways. Either you read the Bible a lot or you drink, smoke, and have a lot of sex. <laughs> and I would suggest that Drukpa Kunli lean towards the latter. Okay. <laughs> And can't blame the guy. No, can't blame him. He it sounds like he had quite a good time slaying the demonesses with his magic thunderbolt. And he used that to get the attention of these communities that he would visit because sometimes people would get a little upset with what he was doing with his magic thunderbolt. But then once he had their attention, he would say, Ah, now you're focused. Now let's talk about A, B, C, D and, and the uh, Buddhist, uh, you know, tenets. Mm-hmm. And that's how he traveled throughout uh, Bhutan. And he traveled through Western Bhutan. And that is where this idea of the phallus as a protector and a symbol of uh, strength came from in their culture. So in other Buddhist communities... Do they have the same connection to the phallus? The phallus itself comes from Egyptian culture, Greek culture. You can find it throughout. There, in the Japanese culture, uh, there are. Uh, so, what happened to it in our culture? That's an interesting question, and that is ultimately why I put this book together. Because, as the father of two daughters, and the husband of a urologist. You know, obviously, it's, it, it's on my mind. And it is amazing to me in Western cultures how, you know, the female flesh is propagated all over, yet somehow it's very offensive or inappropriate to talk about the penis or the phallus. And, you know, look, the, there's all sorts of, uh, there's the Me Too movement, sexual exploitation, all of that goes on. Yet, 
I am no expert in uh, Bhutanese culture, but I, I did have the opportunity to speak to a few people when I back, went back a second time to take further photographs since I was so enamored uh, with the phallic artwork. And in the Bhutanese culture, many areas practice polyandry, which is one woman and multiple husbands. Oh, really? Yes, which is the exact opposite of obviously polygamy. Mm-hmm. And it's a matriarchal society. Land is passed down through the female side of the family in Bhutan. So here, it's just a totally different mindset where the women are in power. And, you know, if you want to look at that way, not that that's necessarily what it means, but to me, and here, quote, the phallus is exploited. It's only the Westerners, and now that they've opened up their culture to tourism uh, that have become more offended uh, by some of these pictures and artwork and, 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 and symbolism that it's starting to go by the wayside, which I think is a total disgrace. Because I, this, I was grinning ear to ear. <laughs> so the influence of Western visitors to Bhutan is causing them to lose some of their historic culture? Yes. That's a shame. It is a shame. And in fact, uh, uh, Kinley Gelchin, who is the guide who I used a couple times, great guy, has a son. And I remember talking about it with his son. And he said, you know, how would you like it if I brought your daughters to my house? You know, when they walked up to the front door, there was a big phallus painting on the wall. I said, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. (laughs) I said, because I think it would be great. (laughs) However, most people are very bothered by it. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, the they walk around, it's like a Coke sign Mm -hmm. to them on the wall or a Pepsi sign. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to promote no, one it. soft yeah. drink or another. Uh, it has no impact. But, you know, to go there and see it is just, you know, as opposed to seeing uh, scantily clad women mm-hmm. in advertisements, here are all these phalluses all over. And, and, I, and I think we could learn quite a bit from their culture uh, to improve what goes on in, in Western uh, society, that these are just symbols. They have meaning, more meaning, a, a greater depth of meaning uh, than sexual uh, connotation. Mm-hmm. I think here in the West, we take something and it gets kind of taken out of context at times. And the body is natural. And if we're not able to respect that, it's... um kind of like the children's book, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but where the little boy is flying through the sky and he's dreaming and you see his penis. And my mom always was a fan of that book. And for some people, it was not acceptable because you saw the little boy's penis. And it wasn't pornography or anything. It's just natural. It's just it is what it is. Funny story, we had our boys were but naked and they were running around the house and they i said hey look there's some guys coming to ask us to shovel the the driveway or the roof or something and they jumped on the couch and are just standing there in the front window (laughs) all natural 
And next thing you know, you see the kids turn around and walk the other direction. I think they saw that and they were like, nope, not going to that house. <laughs> <laughs> so our house, the phalluses were welcoming them. Up, welcoming well, them. that's good. That, that, that's great. And, and as it should be, as it should be, there should be, you know, equal opportunity displays. <laughs> yes. Is, is what I think. Or, or, you know, no displays at all. Uh, but 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 I don't really feel that way. I mean, it's exactly what you said earlier. But also with men in our culture, and and I can say this from experience that we as men don't talk about our penis. And what happens is in in the female side, you hear mammograms, mammograms, get your regular checkup. Well, I had a friend, a fraternity brother, who in his early twenties died from testicular cancer because it was not spoken of for men to check themselves for for lumps. And it's still not spoken about. You hear plenty of commercials on television and media for women to check themselves, but you don't hear, you rarely hear anything for men to check themselves. You're right, it's still taboo in Western society. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why, again, it was so overt in Bhutan. It was wonderful, it was eye-opening uh, to me. And, you know, it's a representation and maybe it would balance things out uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, that sounds strange, but again, I have two daughters. uh, My wife is a urologist. When I say balance things out, it would maybe empower females to have phalluses out there. Hey, guys, now you get a little taste of what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you know how exploited it feels uh, to have you know, body parts all over. Uh, so, I, I, and, you know, obviously it's a slow movement. I still have about 1,300 books left. <laughs> so, yes, please, so you all know, Mark's website is phallusthroughbhutan.com. That'll be in the show notes. And you can go to his website and directly purchase from his website uh, the books. And I will autograph it for you personally with a special stamp that shows it's authentic. (laughs) (laughs) I I see that stamp. And thank you for stamping my book. That was a whole, you know, that was a whole nother. To put this book together took about two and a half years. And it was really an incredible process. And it only reinforces what I was trying to uh, convey. When I would go to publishers initially and walk in and talk about this, they would either think I was out of my skull, thought I was inappropriate, or thought this is not you know, right, this is a joke, right? And I'd go, no, no, I'm serious, I'm very serious. Mm-hmm. However, when I went with my publisher, Mary Grossman, it was a whole different conversation. So it was amazing the response and the seriousness when I came with Mary, a female, mm-hmm. to talk about this. This happened in multiple occasions when we first started doing this. And then I would go with Mary all the time. And then they would take me seriously. Hmm. So, again, you know, this is a problem in Western civilization uh, that they equate this with, you know, perversion or sexuality or deviance or, or something of that nature. And, and really, I think we could make great strides uh, investigating this further. Well, I hope this episode helps get the word out 
more. So you can go into uh, second publication and offer some updates and more information and change the perception of Welsh Western culture one book at a time. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Yes, indeed. So you've written the book about Phallus through Bhutan. And I would say this is a life-changing experience for you. And I also know of another life-changing experience that you went through as well. And you ended up resulting in a diet. But tell us about the life-changing experience that happened and what the end result was. Okay. So I, I, as Stefan mentioned earlier, I'm a physician. I have a brother who is a physician as well. He's a few years older than me. And he was out here uh, visiting at one time. Uh, this was probably, well, eight or nine years ago now. And we were going up Cash Creek. And I would say he's in shape. He snowboards a lot. But obviously living out here, what we consider in shape is slightly different than what the general population considers in shape. Indeed, yes. And we were going up Cash Creek, uh, mountain biking, just on the road. And I thought he was going to die. He was sweating profusely and, uh, you know, rapid uh, respiratory rate, breathing fast and heavy. And we probably went a couple miles up and I said, well, maybe we ought to turn around. Came back and I said, you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You know, in between gasps of air. <laughs> and that was the end of that trip. And what was funny was when he left, I was taking out the uh, recycle and there were six bottles of uh, Simply Lemonade. Now, as those of you who drink that kind of stuff know that those are big jugs. Mm -hmm. And he was here for a week. So that's almost a, a bottle a day, Woo! which I thought was kind of incredible. Kept that in the back of my mind. Moved forward another year or two. He, he was not feeling so well one day. And he's also an anesthesiologist. So he talked to one of his buddies at the hospital where he worked. And his blood pressure was up a little bit. They gave him a little blood pressure medication and said, you know, take this and, you know, come back in a couple of weeks and let me know how you're feeling. And he, as most physicians do, you know, maybe took the medicine, forgot about it. That was the end of that. Went on in his life until probably a, a year later, started feeling not so good again and just had a strange sensation in his chest. This time he talked to a cardiologist friend of his and they said, you know what, let's draw some labs and let's get an echocardiogram. Well, they drew some labs. His blood sugar was like 450. Hello, Simply Lemonade. Right. His <laughs> and he was also over that time was losing a lot of weight. Okay. And he was thinking, geez, maybe I have pancreatic cancer. Geez, maybe I have this thing. But would he go to the doctor? No. Doctors uh, don't go to doctors. Right. Doctors don't go to doctors. <laughs> so, and he, and he was not a large, you know, we're, at, at the time we're similar size and shape. Mm -hmm. You know, probably now I realize a little overweight. And when he went to the cardiologist, drew the labs, as I said, his blood sugar, his labs were all out of whack. They did an echocardiogram, which showed what we call regional wall motion abnormalities, meaning parts of the heart were not uh, contracting appropriately. And they decided to take him to cath, heart catheterization. And he had four vessel coronary artery disease, pretty Whoa. significant. And they said, you need bypass surgery now. You know, it was the acute recognition of a chronic problem, like we like to say. Mm -hmm. And that was that. So I flew out there. And at that point, I was 
running quite a bit. Uh, and my uh, laboratory values, my sugars were starting to creep up a little bit, not, not you know, abnormal, but high normal. Uh, my cholesterol, uh, the best I could ever get it was uh, about 180, 190. Uh, my LDL was about 100 to 120. And my HDL, we had a genetic predisposition, was in the 30s. The best I could ever get it was 39. And that was when I was running marathons. Ooh. And I had been altering my diet slowly. And I'm sitting in the waiting room. And the cardiologist, my brother's cardiologist, comes up to me to introduce herself. I said, hi, you know, Richard's brother and blah, blah, blah. She says, if I was you, I'd have a heart cath. And that was kind of, I was kind of taken aback. I was thinking, geez, I'm feeling pretty good. I go up Glory, I go up Snow King, I... Mm-hmm. skin up uh, rendezvous mountain. You're Jackson active. I'm Jackson active, I, mm-hmm. and I'm not having any symptoms. But it really was an eye-opener because I could tell you what, I do not want a sternotomy. <laughs> <laughs> and that is when I started investigating how am I going to get my numbers to where they need to be. I was also placed on a statin at that point, which, which was seven or eight years ago, and they have different protocols now. And one of the side effects of statins is to, uh, it can adversely affect your liver. And my liver enzymes uh, quadrupled when I was on this medication. And it really didn't uh, allow for significant changes in my uh, lipid profile. So what they wanted to put me on at that time was a medication. When you looked at the literature, it showed no improvement in outcome from a cardiac standpoint. So I'm thinking, well, if the point of this whole exercise is to reduce your risk of heart disease, why do I want to take a medication that has showed no, mm-hmm. just because it corrects my numbers, if it doesn't do anything for the underlying pathology, then who cares? Yeah. So I started investigating various diets and I came upon a, a gentleman, Caldwell Esselstyn, who was a surgeon out of the Cleveland Clinic. And he wrote a book and he is a scientist, uh, not someone out there uh, who uh, believes in grapefruit diets and things of, you know, all sorts of esoteric uh, diets. He's a scientist. And what he started doing, and his wife is a nutritionist, and he used to sit in the lounge at the Cleveland Clinic. And most people know that the Cleveland Clinic is one of the top cardiac surgery institutions in the country, if not the world. And listen to the cardiac surgeons bemoan the fact that they have, to, they have nothing left to bypass on this patient. It's the third time they're back. And he thought, well, maybe there's a way to address this issue. So he started looking at dietary changes. And what he came up with is ultimately this uh, super vegan diet. If it has a mouth or a mother, you do not eat it. If it has any high fat content, you do not eat it, such as nuts, uh, such as avocados, such as coconut. Even though that is a, those are natural foods, whole foods, in his diet, you do not eat these foods. So these are really for cardiac cripple, mm-hmm. or what his diet was made for. And what he found was cath reversal of coronary artery disease, which is unheard of. What he also found is if your total cholesterol is 150 or less, and your LDL is 70 or less, you are heart attack and stroke proof. He has shown this time and time again, uh, scientifically based, research-based. And one of his buddies is the uh, uh, China Diet author and scientist. He's a PhD. His name is slipping uh, my mind at the moment. Uh, But basically, again, a plant-based, whole food-based 
whole grain based diet. And I can tell you, I'm kind of an all or none kind of guy. And when I went on this diet within six weeks, my total cholesterol and the best of my cholesterol I ever got, even on the statin, uh, was 175 or 178. The best my LDL ever got was like 98. And then I couldn't take it because they couldn't increase the dosage because of my liver. After six weeks, had my blood drawn, my total cholesterol was 147. Ooh. My LDL uh, was like 67. My sugar started trending down. And again, this is a pure carbohydrate diet, if you think about it. But these are complex carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are not high fructose corn syrup. This is not processed sugar. This is all whole food. And I was blown away as a physician how quickly my numbers changed. Number one, but more importantly, how good I felt. I would say the first week, week and a half when I went on the diet, I, I felt, I don't know how to describe it, you know, a little foggy. It was almost like things, I was like I was looking through ground glass. Mm -hmm. But after that, I felt like a god. Hmm. I felt incredible. And I felt a depth of energy that I never had before. And, you know, cutting out dairy, uh, which is a, a significant inflammatory mediator in many people, obviously made a difference. Many of these food products that we eat, uh, especially processed food, are pro-inflammation. And this low-grade inflammation in the body is what ultimately leads to metabolic problems as well as other uh, medical problems. So to find something so simple that could alter your biochemical makeup so quickly was just eye-opening. And that's when I realized healthcare is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It's pretty basic. It's pretty simple. You know, and it even gets back to some of the ranchers that we may have alluded to earlier that would come in for surgery who are 80, 90 years old, and I'd see they were on no medications. When I was in Michigan... A lot of the people that would come through the preoperative holding area on so many medicines, they didn't have to eat. They took so many pills three times a day. It was like a meal. Holy smokes. Yet these ranchers were on no medications. And when I first got here, because it was new to me, this community, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, do you go to the doctor? Yeah, I go to the doctor would be their response. Well, how often do you go? When I need to go. <laughs> That's how often I go. Yet what they were doing is these ranchers, they were waking up at three o'clock in the morning working till eight o'clock at night. So, you know, it sounds strange, but, but they were living the whole food life. They were eating whole grain fed meat mm -hmm. because they were, you know, killing the animals uh, that, that they gathered their meat from. They were eating, you know, grains from what they grew uh, and they were working like animals. Our society has changed so much. We have become so sedentary and we are eating all these processed products and, and, and we're trying to wonder what is going on. Why is there increase in, this increase in obesity and increase in diabetes? This is not a shocker. This is pretty basic stuff. And I'm not proselytizing. Everybody has to do what's right, you know, what they feel is good for them. But I can tell you this is a very simple intervention that will change your life. Simple for you to describe. But I feel that for some people, they would see it as very hard, and it would be a lot of sacrifices. But in the end, what's more important? Is it 
your life and quality of life and longevity of life? Or is it take the other approach and just put whatever you want in your body? Right. I, I, I agree. To me, it's all about quality, not quantity. Mm-hmm. And uh, my partner likes to say, I'm going to cross the street one day, look left, and start bus is going to whack me. <laughs> and just in that tenth of a second, I'm going to think, why didn't I have that T-bone steak? <laughs> <laughs> But thus far, I've accomplished my goal and not needing a sternotomy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, congratulations on changing your composition and getting to the results that you wanted to be, uh, where you wanted to be for your health. And I'm sure your family appreciates it because you're with them. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know they do. I know they do. Well, we will put into the show notes the doctor you mentioned and the book that you mentioned as well. So if other people are so inclined to be um, inspired by you, they can look that up as well into our show notes. Wonderful. Actually, Colin Campbell is the author of The China Study. Okay. And he is also a uh, proponent of uh, plant-based diet and has lots of literature uh, to substantiate it. Perfect. Well, Mark, this has been fantastic. Congratulations on everything that you've done, your accomplishments as a doctor here in Jackson Hole, um, the fantastic family that you've raised, and what you do for for us as a community, and challenging us to step out of our comfort zone with your book, Phallus Through Bhutan. Um, I can't wait to share it. And I think I'm going to have to send this to a few friends of mine who might blush a little bit. I think it'll be good for them. I think so too, Stefan, and I want to thank you, and I I want to thank uh, the community for allowing us to uh, become a part of it, accepting us, and uh, uh, allowing us to be who we are and uh, raising uh, two great kids as well. You bet. Take care. Okay. You too. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. A special shout-out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Luke, you help bring it all together. Y'all come back again. You hear?